an esteemed doctor and his wife, a pediatric nurse, raising their two accomplished and outgoing daughters in the tranquil New England town of Cheshire, Connecticut. But 30 miles away, two career criminals out on parole at a halfway house were hell-bent on a night out. What happened in the early morning hours of July 23, 2007, when good and evil collided? This is the case of the Cheshire, Connecticut murders. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 14 of Crime Cave. I'm Christy, and this is going to be a tough one. I remember the moment I first heard about this crime because it happened to occur during an incredibly fun weekend in my life. And it just really hit me that here I was having an amazing time while a family in Connecticut was being absolutely terrorized and going through hell. While I was in Connecticut last October, I purposely spent an afternoon in Cheshire to visit the crime scene and other locations related to the case. I had a chance to really get a feel for the town and for the community. I took some photos of my time there as well as a short video of the drive through the Pettit family neighborhood, which I'll post on the Crime Cave podcast Instagram and Facebook page, so be sure to check that out. Now, let's get to know the Pettit family. Dr. William Pettit, known as Bill, was born September 24, 1956, and grew up in Plainville, Connecticut, where his father had a general store. Smart, personable, and incredibly close with his parents, Bill earned his bachelor's degree from Dartmouth College, went to medical school at the University of Pittsburgh, and earned a fellowship in endocrinology at Yale. Bill would go on to become medical director at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, build his private practice, and serve as director of public health in Plainville for 14 years. But it was early on in medical school when he would cross paths with his future wife. Jennifer Lynn Hawk was born September 26, 1958, in Morristown, New Jersey, and raised in Pennsylvania. Her sister Cindy described her as a winner-type person, She was on the homecoming court, captain of the drill team, and had the lead in the school plays. After earning her nursing degree, Jennifer built a dynamic career as a pediatric nurse and later as a school nurse at a private boarding school where she developed such a maternal rapport with the students that they dedicated their yearbook to Jennifer. She was an avid reader, taught Sunday school, and enjoyed playing the piano and guitar. It was at the start of her nursing career, though, that she met the love of her life aspiring doctor Bill Pettit at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh while she was a new nurse and he was a know-it-all third-year medical student. He tried to correct her on how to properly take a blood pressure since he had all of three minutes of experience at that point. Bill would later say it became clear that she knew more about pediatrics and how to care for kids than he had ever known. Remember when I said Bill was especially close to his parents? Well, he invited them along on their first date. They apparently got along swimmingly because Bill and Jennifer married on April 13, 1985. They built their life together in the quiet Connecticut town of Cheshire, a scenic and very tranquil community. In fact, I found at least four separate videos online with variations of the title Driving Through Cheshire, Connecticut, dating back to 1989. The successful couple joyously went on to have two daughters, Haley and Michaela. 
Haley Elizabeth Pettit, born October 15, 1989, was by all accounts an incredibly strong, generous, and brilliant, yet unassuming young lady who brought affection and integrity to all that she did. She graduated from Miss Porter's school, where she was a high honor roll student, a journalism prize winner, and she received the Exceptional Community Service Award. Haley was also a supremely talented athlete, varsity cross-country, team captain of basketball and crew, and was elected to the all-school senior leadership position of the Athletic Association. Haley called no attention to herself. Instead, putting her energy into leading by example. When her mom, Jennifer, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, Haley sprung into action. She created an organization called Haley's Hope and raised thousands of dollars for MS research. By July of 2007, 17-year-old Haley was preparing to head for Dartmouth in the fall, her dad's alma mater, and study medicine. So her younger sister, Michaela, was excited to follow in her big sister's footsteps and take over the cause, renaming it Michaela's Miracle. Michaela Rose Pettit, affectionately referred to by her family as KK, was born on November 17, 1995. In the summer of 2007, 11-year-old Michaela was looking forward to attending middle school in the fall. Although she sometimes shied away from adults, Michaela had amazing friendships and wanted to make sure everyone felt included. Michaela's teacher said that if there was a student that was being picked on, that was the kid that Michaela would seek out and spend time with. Described as having a perpetual smile, Michaela thoroughly enjoyed the athletic experience at Miss Porter's school during the summer, playing soccer, basketball, and lacrosse, and could often be found jumping on the trampoline in her backyard. She loved reading and was also musically inclined, having recently performed her first flute solo at church. Michaela loved the cooking network and preparing gourmet meals. In fact, on the evening of Sunday, July 22, 2007, Michaela planned to make tomato bruschetta and pasta for her family. So she and her mom went to the Stop and Shop grocery store to pick up ingredients. Jennifer and Michaela leisurely strolled the produce section with their shopping cart, unaware that a 26-year-old career criminal named Joshua Komisarjewski was watching them and would follow them home. After dinner, the family enjoyed a lazy Sunday evening. The girls and their mom watched Army Wives, one of their favorite TV shows, while Bill took the Sunday paper into the sunroom. By 11 p.m., Bill had fallen asleep on the couch. Haley went up to her room, and Michaela lay next to her mom on her parents' bed with the new Harry Potter book. Meanwhile, Komisarjewski was excitedly texting fellow paroled convict, 42-year-old Stephen Hayes, about his prospective victims. These are a few of them. Hayes, we still on? I'm chomping at the bit to get started. Komisarjewski. Hold your horses. Hayes. Dude, the horses want to get loose. LOL. At around 3 a.m., Bill abruptly awoke to a sharp pain in his head and repeated wax to his skull with his own Louisville slugger. 
disoriented and barely able to see. His wrists and ankles were bound with zip ties and rope. The two men told him they were only there to rob the house and asked where the safe was. When Bill told them there wasn't one, the two men made their way upstairs. After shaking Jennifer and Michaela awake, Hayes pulled pillowcases over their heads, tied Jennifer to the bed, and led Michaela to her own room, where she was tied to her bed. The same was done to Haley. The intruders went back downstairs and dragged Bill to the basement, where he was tied to a pole with a blanket over his head and left there to bleed profusely, with at least six three- to four-inch openings in his skull. After ripping out the phone jack, the assailants ransacked the home, finding only $103 and a few gift cards in Haley's wallet, recent graduation gifts. They then found an account book for Bank of America. So the new plan was to hold the family hostage for six agonizing hours until the bank opened at 9 a.m. My name is Mary Lyons. I'm the banking center manager. We have a lady who is in our bank right now who says that her husband and children are being held at their house. The people are in a car outside the bank. She is getting $15,000 to bring out to them that if the police are told, they will kill the children and the husband. Her name is Jennifer Pettit, P-E-T-I-T. Okay, she's still in the bank? Yes, she is. Okay, she's being held for... Her, fa- her husband... and family being held? Yes. At their house? Yes. They're tied up. She said they drove her here. I'm trying to look and see where she's gone. She went outside, but I don't... Oh, wait, I see her walking out. She is petrified. While this interaction was taking place... 11-year-old Michaela was being raped by Komisar Jevsky while he took photos of the assault on his cell phone. Video footage showed Jennifer walking out of the Bank of America branch at 9.23 a.m. That's the last time she would be seen alive. Within the next half hour, she would be raped by Hayes on her living room floor and strangled to death. Two hours earlier... Hayes had taken the Pettit family car to a nearby gas station to fill up two gas cans. They then intended to put them to use. Komisar Jevsky and Hayes poured gas on Jennifer's dead body and throughout the first floor of the home. They then went upstairs and doused Haley and Michaela with gasoline while still tied to their beds and wide awake. The cowards then set the house ablaze and escaped in the family car. At the same time, Bill Pettit was able to make it out of the basement to the outside and with his feet still bound, rolled to his neighbor's garage door while trying not to pass out from blood loss. And while not recognizing Bill immediately due to his injuries, the neighbor called 911. Upon attempting to flee, the two assailants immediately crashed the vehicle into a squad car in front of the home and both were apprehended. But it was too late for the Pettit girls. Jennifer's burnt body was found downstairs. Cause of death? Asphyxiation from strangulation. Michaela died from smoke inhalation, still tied to her bed, surrounded by stuffed animals. Haley had managed to escape her restraints, but collapsed at the top of the stairs. 
Although her official cause of death was smoke inhalation, it was determined that she was likely burning while she was still alive. So who were these two monsters? Here's a brief synopsis. Stephen Hayes was a 42-year-old deadbeat dad who was in and out of prison since he was 16 and caused his family decades of drama. His two younger brothers were interviewed during the trial, with one of them stating, If he wasn't smoking drugs, then I say flip the switch and fuck the trial. His other brother replied, I hope it doesn't even go that far. As nasty as it sounds, I hope somebody puts a bullet in his head outside the courtroom. Defense attorneys tried to portray Hayes as a clumsy, drug-addicted thief who never committed violence until the home invasion. But Hayes was found guilty on October 5th, 2010 of kidnapping, rape, murder, and arson and sentenced to death. Something Bill Pettit vehemently fought for. Joshua Komisarzewski's rap sheet consisted of 18 home invasions. After stealing what he wanted, he would stick around, going from room to room and listening to the occupants breathing. The defense tried to play up the fact that he was adopted, was abused as a child, and had issues with church. However, the following excerpt from his journal gives us a glimpse into his psyche. The Pettit family passed through their fear into the calm waters of abject terror, like mesmerized rabbits cornered by a spring predator. To see that fear, that emotional pain I feel every day manifested on another's face, validates that this pain is real. Furthermore, when he was later interviewed by police, Komosarjevsky downplayed the rape of 11-year-old Michaela by saying that he was asking about her summer plans and one thing led to another. He also had the audacity to refer to her as KK. On December 9, 2011, Komosarjevsky was found guilty on all charges and sentenced to death. However, not surprisingly, the Democratic-controlled state legislature of Connecticut abolished the death penalty in 2012. Both attackers were resentenced to life without parole. It should be noted that jurors were offered PTSD counseling, a first in the state of Connecticut. One juror stated he was not mentally prepared for the trial or the images he was going to see, and as a result, has nightmares about the little girl tied to her bed burning up in the house fire. Nine of the 12 jurors took the state up on their offer. There was also intense controversy regarding the police response to the first 911 call from the bank manager. It was revealed that during the time that Jennifer Pettit was being raped and murdered and the house set on fire, police were actually outside the home the entire time figuring out their strategy. Captain Robert Vignola of the Cheshire Police Department testified that he made the decision not to allow officers to approach the house because he first wanted a SWAT team to establish a perimeter. Questions and frustrations continue to linger in the community regarding this low response and if the outcome could have been much different. The burned-out shell of the Pettit home was demolished a year after the crime to prepare for a memorial garden. I'd like to mention that HBO came out with a haunting documentary called The Cheshire Murders, and I highly recommend it. One other thing. Stephen Hayes claimed to be so tormented by his crimes, 
stating that he'll suffer and carry the burden forever. But in 2019, Hayes announced that he's transgender and now refers to himself as Linda. He began hormone therapy in prison. So he went from, oh, just put me to death because I feel oh so bad about it, to let me make the system pay for my sex change because I want to become my true self. I'm going to be really blunt here. This demon chose to do what he did to that family in 2007. He forfeited his right to get to evolve and start a new chapter in his life when Jennifer, Haley, and Michaela are six feet under when they shouldn't be. My opinion? He just needs to rot. There is some light at the end of this. Bill Pettit created the Pettit Foundation, which is still going strong today. The mission was spawned from something he said during their eulogy. Help a neighbor, fight for a cause, and love your family as a way to honor the memories of the girls and make the world a better place to live. Bill remarried in 2012 with Jennifer's parents' blessing to Christine Poloff, a photographer who volunteered at the Pettit Foundation, and they welcomed a son a year later. An adorable little boy they named William Pettit III. Bill tells his son about his two big sisters and how they're always watching over him. Bill carved out an unexpected and successful career in politics. In 2016, he ran for the Connecticut House of Representatives and won, with the goal of making the state a better place to live for his son. He continues to honor his family and push forward in the hope that good will overcome evil. And now for today's listener question. Okay, this is from Michelle Stuber. And Michelle wants to know how long it takes to decide on a case and research it. You know, prior to starting this podcast, I had actually compiled a list of at least 84 cases that I knew I wanted to cover eventually. So for the majority of the episodes, I go in with a pretty solid knowledge base. For the week leading up to each episode, I spend probably about an hour a day adding to my research. And then pretty much the entire day before releasing it, I get really immersed in the narrating, editing, selecting the music, creating a promo video. I'd say each episode takes at least 12 hours to produce from start to finish, but it is definitely a labor of love. Thanks for your question, Michelle. Hey, everybody, it's Ray the Roadie. And this is Hollywood Mike with the Rock and Roll Chicago Podcast, coming to you from the Illinois Rock and Roll Museum on Route 66 in Joliet, Illinois, where once a week we are interviewing local musicians and singer-songwriters, and the podcast itself covers a wide range of topics, including but not limited to the history of rock and roll in Chicago, the current state of the scene, and the challenges and opportunities facing musicians today. So join us every Tuesday for a new exciting episode of the Rock and Roll Chicago podcast. Thanks for joining me. This episode of Crime Cave has been brought to you by Fortress Defense Consultants, providing security consulting for educational institutions, corporate facilities, and houses of worship, as well as pepper spray, Situational awareness and defensive firearms training for police and private citizens. Find Fortress on the web at FortressDefense.com. Contact Fortress directly at 708-522-8060 or email them at info at FortressDefense.com. Avoid being the subject of a future episode of Crime Cave. Train with Fortress today. Until next time.